As a pastor, I'm constantly concerned about how to create connections beyond just the weekend services. And one of the valuable tools that we have found for achieving this at our church is our app powered by Subsplash. It's one thing to have an app. It's another thing to have an app that has the ability to allow your community to access messages, resources, and even give. And Subsplash created that for us. It's become our go-to platform for connecting with our congregation in ways we never could have before. Subsplash is so much more than just a platform or even just an app. It brings people together, empowers giving, and transforms lives. If you're interested in learning more, I encourage you to visit their website at subsplash.com. That's S-U-B-S-P-L-A-S-H.com. Subsplash.com. Following Jesus isn't always easy, but it's not complicated. Join us each week as we work to make faith simple. This is Simple Faith. Hey, have you ever wondered, boy, I'm trying to lead this church, and the technology side of things, even the worship side of things, seems to be getting out of hand. I mean, we've got hazers, we've got lights, we've got music, we've got people standing up, sitting down, raising hands. People are complaining about it needs to be louder. Other people are complaining it needs to be quieter. What does God want? Well, today in my conversation with Darren Whitehead, we get right into that. What an incredible thinker, author, speaker, and leader in the church today. I can't wait for you to hear my conversation with Darren Whitehead. This is Simple Faith. Darren Whitehead, uh, I think our audience is going to figure out really quickly from your accent, you ain't from around here. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, hey, Rusty. Thanks so much for letting me come on today. Uh, Yeah, I'm originally from Australia. Uh, Moved to the United States 25 years ago. Actually came over to work in radio, work in Christian radio. And I was in Melbourne, Australia, trying to get a work visa to come to Nashville. Had some Aussie friends who worked in the music industry. And I was going to come and, and live with them. And I was going to come work at this radio station. And the, the INS officer at the consulate, American consulate, uh, made a mistake when, when they were reading my file. And they ended up giving me a pastor's visa, a religious visa. I'd never been a pastor before. I had no plans of ever becoming a pastor. But when I came to America, if I wanted to stay, I had to become a pastor. And true, true story. Uh, sometimes people ask me, how did the Lord call you into the ministry? And I say, the U.S. government called me into this. And out of fear of deportation, I just uh, keep preaching. So but that is actually my story. That is how I, I've been a pastor for 25 years. And that is the, uh, the serendipitous story of how uh, I came to be uh, in church ministry. Were you a Christian at the time? I was a Christian. I was going to come work at a Christian radio station, which is some of how they kind of got this confused. I, I, was, going to, I was working at a Christian radio station in, in Australia, and I was coming to work at a Christian radio station in Nashville. And uh, for whatever reason, as they were reading through the file, they were just kind of like, yeah, we need to give him a religious worker's visa. It's called an R1, and uh, it is a pastor's visa. And so... Awesome. Yeah. So I, I would assume you were going to work with the newsboys, right? Because all, all you Aussies know each other, right? Yeah. Actually, the, the, the Aussie community in Nashville is thriving. <laughs> and, uh, and I do know those guys. Several of those guys are in our church. But it was actually the family that I knew was Rebecca St. James's family. And uh, her two brothers are in a band now called For King and Country. Oh, yeah. And I lived with their family for the first two years that I lived in America, and uh, the boys, uh, Joel and Luke, who are for King and Country, were uh, about 11 and 13 at the time. Hmm. So, yeah, that's how I came to the U.S. That That is awesome. Yeah, well, uh, lots of connections there we can get into another time, but that that's incredible. So you come over here, and the United States government basically calls you into ministry, uh, how long between that moment and you deciding, yeah, I think I probably do need to be a pastor, how long did that take? Well, what happened was uh, I immediately started working as an intern at the church, and I basically had to. Like the, mm. the, the church that the Smallbones went to turned out to be my sponsor. That were, like In my passport, you have a sponsor if you're an immigrant coming to the U.S., 
And uh, so the church was my sponsor. So I immediately had to get involved. And what happened was I was a youth pastor intern. And then the the head youth pastor uh, decided to resign and leave. And the church came to me and said, we want you to be our, our new youth pastor. And I said, you know, I don't really want to do that. And they said, well, we think that God's called you to it. And um, we're not going to interview anyone else. We're just going to wait for God to speak to you. And uh, over the course of the next several months, honestly, my my heart just moved towards these students. I, honestly, I fell in love with with working in a church context and teaching the Bible. And, and this is not what I expected to do with my life. I'm sort of a reluctant pastor. But uh, it's it's I mean, it was pretty soon in moving over here. I was an intern. And then within a year, I was on the staff. So at some point in this journey you discover you have a teaching gift because you clearly do. I've heard you speak multiple times and it's evident that God has gifted you that gifted you that way and is using you that way. When did you know I mean it's one thing to say, oh I can do this. I don't, you know, vomit on myself when I stand up in front of people. I, I can actually communicate to a room. But it's another thing to say, I think I'm gifted to do this. I think I have a spiritual gift of teaching. When did that click for you? It was probably about Within the first year or so of, I mean, I started speaking regularly. And I, I think probably a year, maybe a year and a half into this, I, I certainly felt affirmation from people. People seemed to be responding. The ministry was growing. And I found myself being quite energized by it. I often describe preaching for me as a little bit like if you try to write with your wrong hand, your non, like for me, it's left-handed. If I try to write with my left hand, it's, it's, it's a bit of a challenge. When I start writing with my right hand, it's, it's almost like something natural takes place. Hmm. And it's like my effort is combined with the natural dominant hand that, that I have. And all of a sudden it's like, there's a synergy that takes place. Wow. And, and so preaching for me, um, was almost like, oh, I think God has wired me to do this. I would recreationally read theology books. And I, you know, like I, I just, I love to talk theology. I love to deconstruct what makes a great talk and illustrations and the use of humor. And it just became my, just my natural interest. And so pretty early on, I, I really just sensed that God was leading me to do it. Who's some of your favorite communicators right now? I know it changes over time. It may be, they might not even be a, a pastor. They might just be a, a stand-up comedian, but you think that person can really communicate and you like the way they structure things, their, their thought cadence and, uh, and delivery, humor, insight. Who do you like right now? I love that question. So uh, a guy that has just started attending our church recently and has started to become a friend is a comedian by the name of uh, Nate Bargetzi. I love that guy. And um, yeah, so he's a Nashvillian. And, uh, and so when he's in town, he, he joins us. And uh, I remember last time he was at church was at Easter because he's been traveling a lot. But I'm preaching and then I see Nate in the crowd and I'm completely thinking about the, the way that I'm speaking and, you know, <laughs> seeing if he's smiling at anything I've said that's remotely funny, you know? Right, right. I, I respect how he, the way he uses humor is just, it's truly top shelf genius as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. And, and the mechanics of it. And I've talked to him a little bit about, you know, like when you're developing a joke, and the number of ways that the story unfolds and you get like lots and lots of little laughs before you get some big payoff laugh. And the, the way that he has such a deadpan approach, right. you know, he barely cracks a, a grin. And, uh, and spending time with him is just like you would expect. He's just like he is on the stage. His voice inflection, the way he tells stories, everything. So he's certainly one of my current favorites. Uh -huh. um, my closest friend of 30 years is a guy named John Tyson, who is in New York City. And uh, I, I love his communication. And uh, he has kind of been my, my confidant over the last 25 years of doing this. He was doing it at the same time. And he's the guy that I would 
talk to for hours and hours and hours on the art of communication. So there's a couple. He is certainly brilliant, and I was going to ask you if you guys are connected in any way because you're both Australian and you both have churches called Church of the City Correct. in different cities. Um, Tyson teaches for 50 minutes a lot of times. Yes. Do you teach that long as well? Uh, rarely, sometimes. I did a talk just recently that, that turned into 50 minutes, but not intentionally. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm usually shooting for about 38 to 42 minutes. Okay. Okay. What about you? Yeah, because uh, I'm closer to thirty. Yeah. Uh, I find that uh, I, I find that it's obviously if you're good, it doesn't matter how long it is. I find that I can hold people's attention for about that long, and soon after that, our children's ministry begins to come out and get me and tell me to shut up. So yeah, uh, at some point, I got to land the plane. Um, but I'm a little bit envious that you actually have met Nate Bargatze. I feel like he is. He is as good as it gets right now. Uh, and having lived in the South, you know, being from the Midwest, I totally get a lot of the instances he's talking about, and I just think he's phenomenal. And you're right, his style is so good. And, and I, I can't imagine being on stage looking out and seeing him <laughs> and thinking, oh my gosh, could I make him laugh? Would that be possible? <laughs> no, I totally was. You know, uh, at Easter, uh, we did six services, six identical services on Saturday and Sunday. And so... Um, you know, after all, I'd, I'd done this talk so many times. Yep. And so I'm looking at Nate in the crowd and I'm speaking, but I'm thinking about something completely different. I'm just on autopilot. Oh, yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, I've got a funny story coming up. I want to see if he loves. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we had uh, uh, Andrew Stanley on the podcast, yeah. you know, months ago, and he talked about how what, what makes comedians laugh is usually not the same thing that makes us laugh. It's usually the, you know, the people, uh, you know, crashing and burning on stage that makes them amused. And I thought, you know, pastors are a little bit like that too, you know. Well, we, that's true. We there's, love- a, there's an old documentary called Comedian. I don't know if oh, you ever saw that. Many times. I loved that. The thing that I thought was amazing is watching, I think it was like Jay Leno and someone else, and they were like writing material. And they're writing it, and none of them are grinning or smiling or laughing. They're just going, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, that'll work. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. it's, it's completely the tactics of humor, but they're not even smiling and they're going, oh, that'll work. That's funny. Yeah. It was, uh, it was Leno and it was that guy that was on SNL for a long time, Colin. Yeah. I can't think of his last name. Yeah. I, I totally remember that scene and they're all just kind of workshopping things and it's like, That's right. you know, it's like they're fixing a car. It was awesome. Uh, okay. So we sidetracked there, but I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about you plant a church, Church of the City. You're already in Nashville. You've decided to become a pastor. You're working at a church. You decide to plant a church. What made you decide Nashville needs another church, or I need to plant this church, or this is going to be a different type of church? Give me some of the thought process behind that. So I was a youth pastor um, from 1998 to 2004. I got married to an American girl from Tennessee in 2002. And then 2004, moved to Chicago and uh, joined the staff of a church called Willow Creek. That's right. And I was there for eight years. So kind of all my children were born during that era. And uh, I was uh, sort of spent almost all my 30s um, working at Willow. And uh, that's how Gene and I got to be close and bro and many of the others from from that that era. But That's right. Um I started out as the college pastor at Willow. I was uh, leading a ministry called Axis. Yeah. And then um, I had added to my uh, responsibilities leading the, the student ministry, and I did that for a, a year or two. And then actually when Gene, Mike Bro, and Randy Frazee left, it was all during around about the same time, that's when I essentially took one of their jobs. I, I became the teaching pastor there and uh, did that for the following six years or so. Mm -hmm. So then um, decided that I really wanted to plant a church. I was 38 years old and I I was just ready. I I felt like this is what God had wired me to do. And um, we chose Nashville because it was the second uh, fastest growing market for millennials at the time. Um, There was... 150,000 college students in town and 50% of them stayed after they graduated. Mm. So it was just exploding 
with, uh, with millennials. And um, so I thought, well, this is the, the least churched age group in America at the time. And uh, I really wanted to go plant churches in the center of where these folks were living and, and really try to reach millennials, which sounds like, a, you know, that's just, uh, we just crossed 10 years as a church. Mm. So not a lot of people are talking about millennials as much as, you know, Gen Z. Right. But um, that's what we set out to do. We planted two churches in the same day, one in a poor area of town and one in a wealthier area of town. And um, so we were kind of multi-congregation from the first day. And we set up chairs and everything in one place in the morning, tore it all down, drove across town, set it up again, and then did church again. And uh, so we did it like that for the first two years. Now, explain that to me. Why would you do that? Because that sounds like a lot more work. It's hard enough to plant one church, let alone two. Was it just this missional mindset of let's do for both groups of people, let's let one pay for the other, uh, you just have a you know, scaffolding crew of people that were from both areas? Give me the thought process there. That's fascinating. It was, it was actually all of the above, all of the things that you just mentioned. That, um, definitely from a missional standpoint, hmm. Um, we were able to use the resource from the wealthier community to, to parlay that resource into reaching a, a, an under-resourced, poorer community. But also the power of the mission, this is two communities of people that wouldn't ordinarily ever interact, interact or know one another. And, um, and so, you know, one was in uh, an area that was more of a red community politically and one was more of a blue uh community politically and so some of the jokes only worked in one space and didn't work in the other you know <laughs> but um I, you know i would say at the time planning two churches is not twice as hard as one it's about one and a half times as one, as as one. <laughs> okay okay because you know you're writing the same talk and then you're doing it in both places and right we had some degree of critical mass in, in each of these particular areas. And so we found a good location to start gathering and we built a launch team, a core team in each one. And, and, and so that's how we started it. Um, every church planner knows it, it takes a while for you to feel like you are acclimated to the area and that the area has accepted you. Uh, I know when I moved out here to California, it took a while before I felt like Okay, they're overlooking my my accent. Uh, they <laughs> they're overlooking the fact that I'm not from here. You have a very thick accent. You haven't lost it in 20 plus years. Uh, kudos to you for that. I'd keep it too. But how long did you think it took before the people from Tennessee could connect with you or relate to you or felt like okay, he's not from here, but he's one of us? Well, you know, the first time I lived in the Nashville area, so you know, 98 to 2004 was one era. It was the era of um, Christian music was highly lucrative um, because people were buying CDs mm-hmm. and it's before streaming and, and iTunes and all that kind of stuff. So uh, there, was, there was a big Christian music scene. The publishing industry, Christian publishing industry was big. Country music was a little bit more fringy. So fast forward 10 years and I'm back in town again, but it's really a different era. Mm. Um, Nashville country music had exploded and been, you know, one of the, the, the fast growing uh, music genres in the world. Mm-hmm. Christian music had shrunk and largely become sort of the church worship scene. So that was all really, really different. Mm. But what had happened in Nashville is it had really become an entertainment town. So you, it, was, it was really a music center. And so you had lots of people moving from the West Coast and a lot of people moving from uh, uh, the East Coast. But it really became like this international city. And so me not being from anywhere in the US, but being from Australia, kind of, as it turned out, played pretty well with the international, you know, the eclectic scene. Hmm. And instead of people putting me in a box of like, well, you don't understand because you're from New York or you're from the West Coast, it's like a completely third way. And I'm from another country entirely. Right. And so it actually turned out to be a bit of an advantage. Um, People were genuinely interested in just an international voice. Mm -hmm. I can see that. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So I want to go back to something you said earlier. You you wanted to reach millennials. Uh, which obviously at the time was the largest unchurched people group. Now you, you know, we've got Gen Z. Um, 
why, why this group, and obviously because of the lack of church, are you a millennial? And, and did you, you know, you went and got this doctorate of millennial engagement, which I didn't even know that was a degree. That's fascinating. <laughs> What'd you learn then that you think, oh, that's not really applicable now? I mean, what are you seeing in with millennials? Well, I'm not a millennial. I'm a Gen Xer. So um, Gen X, very small in comparison to boomers and millennials. Absolutely. Um, but millennials is still the largest unreached group. Um, millennials is much larger than Gen Z anyway. Mm. But um, yeah, I, it, wasn't, it wasn't so much a degree in my doctorate, but it was my, my area of study for my dissertation. Okay. And so what I was doing is noticing in my own church, um, a lack of engagement from millennials in terms of serving and, 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 you know, so we had this big crisis of where we had all of these children that were, you know, in our children's ministry, but we couldn't get anyone to, huh. to be serving. So this is, this is the, the origins of the, of the study. What I, what I found though, is that there was millennials and boomers were sort of disengaging with serving at the church. And so I wanted to do a study on millennials and on boomers and why they were disengaging and what could we do to re-engage them. And so one of the things we did in the, in basically in the thesis is, is the idea of, of getting millennials and boomers together and actually pair them together and, and have them do a study together. And the outcome of that was um, engagement on both groups. So you had all of these boomers who boomers are healthier and living longer than, than any generation in history. And so they would finish their careers and retire, and then they would like buy an RV and travel around the country rather than staying and serving in their church. And then millennials just have never really been taught to serve faithfully in the church. I'm generally speaking, of course, but they just wouldn't, they wouldn't engage. And so that was the, what the, the dissertation was, was research that was centered on that, those ideas. So, that's fascinating to me because I was always taught or always assumed maybe that the way you reach the millennial generation is you provide ways to serve your community, but you saw something entirely different. Has it remained that way or have you seen any kind of a change or is it different now in Nashville than maybe it was in Chicago when you started thinking about this? Well, what's interesting is that the profile of the millennial has changed. Millennials are now young adults with kids. Right. And, and so their, their needs are completely different. You know, I mean, Gen Z, you know, like when I was studying the millennials, it was really like this new group and we're trying to understand the distinctives and the nuances of this particular group. Well, everyone talks about Gen Z like that now and their addiction to screens and all of that kind of stuff. But uh, millennials were just sort of a punchline about being entitled and, you know, um, you know, basically wanting to make 250 grand a year as soon as they get out of college. So there were all of these sort of punchlines and, and, and stereotypes about millennials. The millennials that we were trying to reach 10 years ago are now 32 years old and married with three kids. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, a, it's a different game. They're now the ones that are populating our kids' ministry. Mm. So, and and they're, you know, they're, they've started to get traction in their careers. It's, it's really a different scene. Yeah, it is interesting. All the work we've all done and read on generations kind of comes down to a lot of stage of life, doesn't it? At some point right. you get married, have kids, and you're like, oh, hmm. the house church down the street isn't quite as cool when I got a children's ministry the other side of the street that can take care of my kids. Right. Uh, okay, so I want to talk to you about a book that you wrote. And this might, I don't know if this is your only book or not, but it's certainly the one that I, I've read the most recent, and that is Holy Roar. Uh, tell us a little bit about this book and why you chose to write it. So the origin of this book was uh, a sermon that I did, and uh, I was preaching a sermon about the topic of worship. I, I guess worship has played such a big role in my life personally. Um, when I was 19 years old, I grew up in a, in a small Baptist church in the country where, you know, people didn't engage too much in their expression of worship. You know, I mean, if they were feeling quite moved and passionate, um, you couldn't tell from their faces, you know, the, you know, so they, it wasn't an engaging environment. And, and the consequence for me, just as a kid growing up in that environment is that we would just sing and sing hymns and yawn and look around the place, you know, 
when I was 19 years old, someone invited me to a much more charismatic church where I was just ambushed by the engagement of these people and how they worshipped. And so that was a big theme in my life. And uh, I was teaching um, a, a sermon series years ago. And one of these talks I gave was uh, doing a word study on the word praise and in the in the Psalms and learned that there were seven Hebrew words for praise that are all conflated into the English word praise. So we have one word, it's translated, but in in the Hebrew scriptures, there's seven different words and they all mean something completely different about an expression of of what worshiping God is. Hmm. So that was the that was the outline for my talk. I, I was I was breaking down the seven Hebrew words for praise. And uh, a worship leader who is a member of our church, Chris Tomlin, was in the room. Yeah. And when I was done, he walked up to me and said, dude, that, that may be the best talk I've heard on this topic, you know? And that, that's saying something. I know. Well, and he, I mean, he was very kind. He was like, how is it that I've never heard this before? Wow. And uh, that turned into uh, a discussion about like, he's like, you need to write a book. Mm. And like, people need to know about this. Like, this could be a resource for worship leaders and Christians and such. And, uh, and he said, you need to write a book. And I said, well, why don't we write it together? And he said, okay. And so we wrote it together and uh, we released it. And I ended up doing three tours with Chris, did almost a hundred cities together, sharing this story and, uh, and, and Chris and I got to partner up in releasing this, these ideas to the world. Hey, let me interrupt for just a second. If you're a church leader and your church does not have an app or your app seems to be a little bit limited, check out subsplash.com as a great resource to really give your app all the horsepower that it needs. You can connect people, you can help them get access to messages, and you can help them set up recurring giving, which is a game changer when it comes to resourcing your ministry, subsplash.com. Okay, back to our episode. Okay, let me ask you about that. You go on tour with a worship leader. It's one thing to go on tour with the newsboys, okay? <laughs> Same set list every night. We're going to rock the house, and it's going to be fun and be a little crazy. But with a worship leader, yeah, there's probably a set list, but... I, I mean, I've seen Chris many times. There's a lot of, let's see what God's doing here and let's follow his lead. What did you notice from backstage watching the audience that maybe the audience doesn't see from their perspective? Uh, how was God moving in, in a way that maybe was different from city to city? Or what surprised you during that time? A couple of things come to mind about like different areas of the city, uh, different areas of the country are just so different, right? Okay. So um, what happened in Florida in an arena versus what happened in Atlanta versus what happened in Baltimore mm. um, or we, we played Hollywood Bowl one, one night, like what happened Hollywood Bowl, you know, like it was, it was all very different in different parts of the country. But what, what stands out to me is in the, in the Northeast where they don't have a lot of Christian concerts come through or worship nights come through, the the amount of hunger mm. in, in Boston was just amazing. And, and collectively hearing the crowd sing in Boston, you know, you're a good, good father, you know, it's like it's just the, <laughs> the best experience ever. Do they change it to wicked good? Wicked good, wicked good, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was an authentic worship night that was different every single night. Huh. And uh, depending on where it was in the country, uh, made a huge difference on how it all felt. It was, it was honestly one of the most enjoyable experiences of my life touring mm -hmm. with Chris and his team. The Hollywood Bowl. I love that place. Yeah. I've seen multiple shows there. I've never seen a bad show or had a bad night or a bad experience there. It's beautiful. Yes. What's it like to lead worship in that place? <laughs> I mean, that, that's one of the standout memories of my life, I think, getting to preach in the Hollywood Bowl. Chris sold it out. So it was sold out, absolutely packed. You know, and as you know, everyone's up in front of you and you're kind of down low looking up at everyone. Um, man, it was breathtaking. Wow. I mean, to take such a such an iconic, famous venue yeah. 
and just to be proclaiming the gospel and to be turning it into a church was was something that I will cherish forever. That's a little different than me seeing the Dave Matthews band there. Just a, yeah. I mean, both groups, pretty good. <laughs> both groups were high, just in different ways. So, <laughs> yes. um, okay, well, I want to talk about the book then. Seven words. Give us, I don't, I don't want to give it all away because I want people to go get the book. Give us three of them um, that you thought, wow, that, I hadn't thought about it that way. Okay, well, um, in the book, the first word that we talk about is the word yada means, and yada means to throw one's hands up. And um, it's the same word that is used to like throw a spear or throw a stone. And, um, you know, I grew up in a tradition where no one lifted their hands when they were worshiping. Mm -hmm. And uh, if someone did, I kind of thought that was silly or they wanted to use the restroom or something, you know. (laughs) And I remember the first time that I ever did. I remember the first time that I was in an environment where I, I, I wanted to lift my hands like I couldn't help myself anymore. And I was aware that there were other people around me who were non-hand raisers. And I kind of thought to myself, like, I'm not sure if I want to do this. But something overcame me where I I couldn't help but reflecting on the goodness of God in my life, in my heart. And I just thought, I don't care anymore. I'm just going to lift my hands. And that is really the natural instinct of, of human beings. You know, like you go to a football game and they score a touchdown, you involuntarily lift your hands. Mm-hmm. There is something that is baked into the human experience where we yada, we, we, we just lift our hands. And so um, in my own personal story, uh, uh, becoming someone that just really loves to be in the presence of God and to worship God and to, and to lift my hands, the, the word yada became a, a, an important word. Mm. Uh, another word is the word tolda, and tolda means to to thank God for things that have not occurred yet. Hmm. So it is it is thanking in faith. So you are you are praising God for things that have not yet happened. Hmm. And um, when people are in difficult times, or they're praying for someone who is sick, or they are in between and anticipating God moving in their lives, um, the kind of praise that is thanking God for his faithfulness, even before it has happened, is, is captured in this in this word, tolda. Mm. And I think it's a really beautiful word. And uh, that's what the Christian life is supposed to be, right? Mm-hmm. It, is, it is praising God, trusting his faithfulness, even before we have been assured that what we're asking for is actually going to come to pass. Hmm. Um, the third word that I'll share with you is the word Shabak. Hmm. Shabak means a shout of praise. Shabak is the idea of a, of a roar. This is, this is where the title Holy Roar came from. Hmm. But there, there, there are times to be still before God. Uh, God, uh, it says in Zephaniah, like he sings over us. Mm. Um, there, there is like this quiet kind of, 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 of singing. Shabak is the idea of a shout. It's a shout of praise. It's the idea of uh, in, 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 in Psalm 145, it says, one generation shall praise your works to the next. It's the, that's the word Shabak. One generation will shout a holy roar of the faithfulness of God to the next generation. Mm. So, you know, all, all of these words mean something slightly different and they inform a different aspect of what it really means to be worshiping God. It's a great read. It's a great message. I've heard it now a few times. Um, for every pastor out there, and especially every worship leader out there that's thinking, oh, I wish our people could get that. You've developed a worship culture at your church. I mean, it helps to have Chris Tomlin, you know, on the rotation. Yeah. But not just that, there's a teaching element too. And I, I got to imagine there's a modeling element of it as well. How would you coach a church into developing a worship culture uh, at a place where maybe it's not, it's not that common? Well, you do have to teach a theology of worship, mm. you know? Um, people don't accident like a culture doesn't accidentally change. You, you, you've really got to teach people what the scripture says. The Psalms, uh, uh, like apart from the seven Hebrew words of praise, the Psalms are filled with expressions of people who, 
who are lifting their hands, who are dancing before the Lord, who are, you know, like, uh, I, I think it's possible that when we get to heaven, we're going to realize that we were uh, underwhelming. Many churches were pretty underwhelming in their lack of, of engagement, uh, the, the, their emotion. And, and, and you know, we, we, we scream over football games hmm. and we lose our minds over March Madness. And then we come into the house of the Lord and we are very somber or maybe even bored. Mm-hmm. And I think you got to teach people that. Yeah, that's so good. Uh, is there another book on the horizon for you? I'm actually working on one right now because we are doing a series that has been a, a surprise to me. So we start out the year every year with 21 days of prayer and fasting. Mm-hmm. And some people were kind of like, well, I'm not going to fast from food. I'm going to fast from technology. And I'm like, that's, that's a good thing to fast from. That's not what biblical fasting actually is. <laughs> and fasting may be the most neglected spiritual practice in the modern world. Mm. And so, but similarly to food, devices cover up the way we are actually feeling. We're numbed out and distracted and as, as much as, as much as anything else. In fact, devices have seeped their way into our lives hmm. and uh, we barely have discretionary thought anymore because everyone has their, their heads buried in their phones and it's affecting people's personal mental health. It's affecting their relational world and uh, interactions with their kids. Uh, and it's affecting our spiritual lives. We don't have capacity to hear from God anymore because we have our heads buried in devices. And just about everyone says, I don't feel great about my relationship with my device. I'm on my phone too much. So uh, I decided that we were going to lead our church through a digital fast. And um, I kind of taught several messages on, you know, John 10, 10, the enemy comes to steal, kill and destroy. And is it possible that one of the primary ways that the enemy is stealing and killing and destroying is through these glowing rectangles that we're carrying around with us. You know, the, the correlation between suicide and depression and the invention of the iPhone mm-hmm. is, is like this perfect parallel. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, the research is in. People's lives are more depressed, more lonely, more disconnected, more sense of comparison and, 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 and depression and, and suicide ideation when it's correlated with their use of social media and devices. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking about this a lot. And the month of May, our whole church is in the middle of a, of a digital media fast, 30 days of taking your phone, making it dumb. So take a smartphone and you got to look at every app through the lens of, is this a distraction or a utility? And so anything that is a distraction, things like email and social media and news apps and games, get, get those all off your phone. Or you can use what I've been using, and this is called a light phone. And this is about the most unattractive phone that you will ever see. And there is nothing interesting on it at all, but it, you can text and you can make phone calls. I'm telling you, Rusty, this is a better life. Yeah. My, my mind is clearer. I am more present with my family. I am discovering all kinds of things about what is going on inside of me that I've just been burying underneath doom scrolling on a phone. Hmm. So and I'll ask you the question. I am writing a book right now that a church could use as a resource to be leading to like take the aspects of biblical fasting, applying it to digital technology and saying what, can we extrapolate from that in terms of preparation, how you would do it, what you do, and then provide a guide for churches to actually lead an entire congregation or a small group or a school to go through 30 days where you are unplugging from digital media and see what happens inside of you. One really interesting thing, and I have not heard of another church that's doing this, and maybe there are, But what's so fascinating is that anyone who does a a digital media fast, 100% of them have a positive experience. Mm -hmm. 100% of people are glad they did it. They don't look back and they go, gosh, man, I really, I really miss all of the hours that I could have spent 
looking at Instagram reels. Yeah. No one says that. Right. Everyone's right. life is better and they're glad that they did it. But instead of doing it all on your own, you're doing it with an entire community. Right. So my kids are doing it like, and, and all of their friends are doing it. And so we literally have thousands of people who are doing a digital media fast all at the same time. Mm. So our expectations are different. I've, I don't have email on my, on my phone. And this is the first time I got a Palm Trio in 2005. And for the last 18 years, I have had email on my po- in my pocket for 18 years until the last two weeks. And I am now 15 days into not having email. And guess what? It's a better life. Yeah. It's a better life not pulling up at the lights and looking down and seeing I've got three emails and I start scrolling through and maybe I delete one of them and maybe one's a mean email from someone in my church or there's some problem that someone is bringing on my staff. And I, I, I just, people have access to me all the time mm-hmm. in that capacity. I'm, or I'm a slave to my inbox, mm. but not anymore. So that's what, that's what I'm working on right now and I'm super passionate about it. First person ever on this podcast after nearly 300 episodes to mention the Palm Trio. <laughs> yes. And can we just pour one out for that? Because it was amazing. It was. <laughs> Remember the day when you thought, if I could just get my email and calendar on my phone, that would be great. What's funny, since the Palm Trio, and I only know this because I had to migrate all my contacts over onto this phone. Uh-huh. You know, like you get Palm Trio over to the iPhone. I bought the iPhone on the opening weekend when it was released, <laughs> right? It was in June of 2007. And then as I've got a new iPhone, you know, year after year, you get a new model, whatever. You're always just migrating your contacts. So I have all of these contacts that date all the way back to the Palm Trio. I just keep importing them and accumulating them. Yeah, I, I have gone through the contact list and realized I don't even know half of these people. Uh, That's right. Some of which have, have died a long time ago, and here, here they are. Well, that, that is fascinating. I can't wait to see that and can't wait for our church to go through it because I... I totally agree, uh, and and when you see when you see the graph that shows yes. the the use of social media and mental illness, it just goes hand in hand. It's it's, it's just an epidemic stunning. in our time. Yeah, and 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 technology like the iPhone has seeped its way into our life. Mm-hmm. In two thousand and seven, there were no downloadable apps. There was no social media. There was there was no news apps. There was no. This has all come when you get a new update, new software, download a new app. You know, it's 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 taking it's seeping in and taking over more and more and more of our lives. It didn't start out like that. Yeah. So it's a little bit of the concept of what Marie Kondo says, right? You like clean everything out, and then you only bring back things that spark joy, as she says. Mm-hmm. So what are the apps that I'm going to bring back in the month of June that spark joy and the rest of them, I'm not bringing them back. Now it doesn't mean I can never be on social media. Just don't do it. Don't have it in your pocket all the time. Right. Go on social media on an iPad at home or on a desktop computer or something. Oh, that's a great idea. So there's a, there's a bunch of third ways practices Mm -hmm. that, that we are both learning from other smart people and some that we are developing ourselves of just like, we've got to push back on these devices a little bit and say like, what's happening right now is not working for me. Mm-hmm. And we're not saying you all become Amish and you throw everything away. But what we are saying is like, you got to have some guidelines here so that it's, it's actually healthy and adding value and netting, netting a positive experience rather than a negative experience, which mm. it just feels like in the last three years or so, people have moved when it comes to smartphones it's just like this general pervasive sense. I'm not sure my life is better with this thing. Yeah. And it didn't used to be like that. There is a growing trend of even, you know, students that are going back to the uh, the flip phones or the dumb phones. Yeah. Dumb phones, yes. Uh, to get away from it. Boy, I think that's such a healthy thing. Okay, so let me ask you, what's the app you'll bring back? <sighs> I, I tell you, I don't know if there is anything that I'm going to bring back that I've got off right now. Uh, all social media is gone. I might bring a news app back. Um, I'm definitely not bringing uh, email back. Email has been email was the thing I was most anxious about because mm-hmm. I just sort of thought 
you know what it's like. When your email gets out of control, you feel overwhelmed. There's messages that are buried in your inbox and you don't even realize that I've got people on my staff who are waiting to hear back from me on something and they're just in a holding pattern until they hear back from me. I feel anxious about servicing email. Yeah. And so I was really concerned that without visiting my inbox 65 times a day, I'm going to visit it one time and it's just going to be overwhelming. Yeah. And that just hasn't been true. No, most of it's junk. Because what happens is, you know, like you get, you get emails that you, you need to give a measured response that take a little time. You get that kind of email. You get emails that's just informing you of something and you can delete it. Then you get a bunch of spam. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Amazon's delivered something. And then you get, you know, maybe some, some emails that are, that are quite critical or they're setting up a time or whatever. You have all of those things. When you're working on your inbox and you've got 40 emails, you quickly categorize them into those sort of categories. And so I find myself highlighting 15 emails and hitting delete once and they're gone. Yeah. Instead of, you know, checking it all the time. Yeah. And I, for whatever reason, if I pull up at the lights and I'm looking at my phone, my phone doesn't notify me that I've got an email. I, I don't have notifications on, but I certainly see like the little red one, two, three, four, whatever notification. Yeah. And I can't help myself but to, to look at it. So who needs me? And I'll tell you another thing I used to do. I used to wake up every morning. I know a lot of people do this, but my phone was my alarm. Yep. And so I wake up, I roll over. If I see that I've got unread email, I'm barely awake and I'm reading email. Yeah. Like that's not a good way to live. And yet I've done it for years, <laughs> but not anymore. My, my phone is no longer in my room. Um, it's just, it's just a better way to live. It is a better way to live. That's fantastic. All right. So for the benefit of the pastors listening to this podcast, because we all get negative emails and they're usually from well-meaning people that just want us to be a little bit more like a different church. They don't attend mm -hmm. usually one that they've left, but now they want you to become like it, which is always humorous to me. Right. We look at a guy like Darren Whitehead who has an incredible church, incredible ministry, incredible teaching gift, Chris Tomlin's leading worship. <laughs> what in the world does somebody have to say to you? What's the critical email that you get? Well, I mean, you just named it, right? I mean, <laughs> people import their previous religious experiences and they impose it on the new leader. Yep. It's, it's, it's the, the technical term is transference, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not, it's, it's not, it's, it's pastors, it's parents, it's school teachers that have harmed them in the past. I, I, I tell you what I have learned mm. and, and I get criticized on all the same things. I mean, sometimes it's because I said something dumb. Sometimes it's because someone supposes to understand a motive that I may have and they are imposing that on me. Uh, sometimes they don't like the way I handled something that was controversial or political, or it was just a cultural moment that we found ourselves in. I, I had an experience. This is several years ago. This is back when email was on my phone, which was as recent as two weeks ago. It was my daughter's. I have three daughters. It was my daughter's birthday and we were in my dining room and like I did often, you know, like I just would involuntarily open my phone. I'm like walking from one room to another and I just grab my phone and I just look at it. It's not even a conscious choice. It was just like a reflex. And I did that and I saw I had an email. This is a Sunday, early evening on a Sunday. Mm. And, I, and I checked my email and it is like the meanest scathing email that, you know, if you've been doing this a while, you get those. But it really hurt me. Mm. And the rest of the night, I just was not present with my family. Right. And my daughter was blowing out candles. And instead of relishing the beauty of this moment that I'll never have back again, I was rehearsing what I wanted to say to that person in my, in my mind. Mm -hmm. And I was angry and I was hurt and I was defensive and I was not present with my family. Mm. And after that experience, I took the, the, the general email account that everyone had for me and I no longer checked that. 
it goes to my assistant Mm -hmm. and my assistant sends me all of, so, so like people didn't have access, the same degree of access of just hammering me. Mm -hmm. Now I've gone another step and I don't have email on my phone Mm -hmm. because I, you know, it's just not good for my mental health. Yeah. That's so good. Well, buddy, this was not the direction I thought we would go, but it's the direction we needed to go because I know that a lot of us need to hear that. Uh, That's such a great word for us. And we confuse ourselves into thinking, those of us who are pastors, I'm doing the work of God by keeping up with his people. But come on, uh, you know, at some point you got to shut it off and you got to be healthy and you got to be whole. I had that aha moment one day where I thought, is the church paying me just to handle email? This is ridiculous. Right. And when it consumes my entire waking hours, um, I, and I was, I'd be writing a message and answer an email at the same time. And I thought, this is just unhealthy. So I'm with you on all of that. And I look forward to all of us taking a fast together. Yes. Aaron, this has been awesome. Uh, it's been great to hang out and talk. And I hope we get to do it again sometime. I hope that it's in person sometime, too. Yes. Well, thank you so much uh, for being on the show. And I want to tell everybody to go check out Holy Roar. If you're in the Nashville area, check out Church of the City and uh, everything that Darren's putting out is fantastic. So uh, thank you, Darren, for being on. Thank you so much, Rusty. Well, I was certainly blessed by that. I hope you were as well. Darren's an incredible guy, incredible communicator. I encourage you to pick up that book, Holy Roar, that he wrote with his friend and buddy, Chris Tomlin. Uh, what, a, what a great, great resource. Next week, we're back with someone that's been on the podcast before. His name is Joseph Barkley. He's got the coolest middle name. It's King, Joseph King Barkley. And so why wouldn't you go with that? Uh, He's going to talk to us about how transformation can happen in our lives. And he has done a lot of deep work on this and has even done some specific work in his area of coaching people to achieve that. So we'll be back next week with Joseph Barkley and Simple Transformation. Uh, But until then, make sure that you share this podcast with somebody else and hit subscribe. Thank you so much for being with us. We will talk to you next week. And as always, keep it simple. Mm